This morning we're carrying on in our, uh, in our Future Proof series, and we're <clears throat> working our way through the book of Revelation. And uh, we've, we've been doing it over the past few weeks now, and we're going to turn to God's Word, and we're turning to, to Revelation, and we'll be reading from, uh, from the tail end of chapter 5 in a moment. But first of all, just a sort of a, a really quick where we've come from. We saw in chapter 1, we've been calling this the, the last word, and we see how the book of Revelation is, in a sense, uh, God's word and invitation and encouragement to engage with the rest of the whole of Scripture because uh, there's, there's nothing new in here in a sense. It kind of sums up and it gives us pictures and images of, of things that have already been uh, shared with us and, 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 and um, revealed in the rest of Scripture. So Revelation is an encouragement to engage with the rest of God's Word. So we've seen in Revelation chapter 1, we saw uh, how uh, that wonderful uh, picture of, of Christ, and we, we looked at the last word on the church, and then we saw uh, how we worked through chapters 2 and 3, looking at uh, his, his involvement, Christ's uh, presence with the church, and then we looked last week at uh, chapters 4 and 5, and we had this wonderful picture of worship, and we thought of the, the last word on worship. So we come now, and we're going to be looking at the last word on evil, the last word on evil uh, this morning. So I want to look largely uh, at, at 5 and 6, but just the last two verses of, of chapter uh, 5, the last two verses of chapter 5, and then some verses from 6, some verses from 7, uh, when I was trying to like, sort of work out what of this to read, because we can't read every bit of it, and you're like, it's just all so good. So please, uh, you may be reading other things as well, but please do read Revelation and try and read even ahead into the whatever we're going to be speaking about each week. Uh, that would be great. But we're reading from chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, into 68 to start with. And so uh, John, he's on Patmos on the island. He's in, he's in prayer. He's in the Spirit. He's, uh, and God gives him this revelation. Jesus gives him this res- revelation. Uh, and the talk, we get to chapter 5, and there's, there's a, a scroll. Uh, and and, and uh, Christ, no one can be found worthy to open a scroll, but Christ comes, and Christ opens the scroll. And, 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 and as he opens the scroll, uh, John hears this, and he sees this. Then from 13, chapter 5. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. 
Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And then moving on into chapter 7, reading from verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So then, how are we to understand all this evil that's still in the world? You see, as John's first readers of the book of Revelation, like ourselves over the the past few weeks, as they looked in awe at, at the picture of the glorious risen Christ, shining in all his brilliance and glory and power in chapter one, as they rejoiced in how he is amongst his churches in chapters two and three, and as they marveled at the wonderful picture of, in chapters 4 and 5, of the whole of creation worshipping him. Yet they languished under the weight of the Roman oppression and deadly persecution, day in, day out. And it must have been surely a question on their lips. If Christ is risen and ruling and reigning, then why is there still so much evil in the world? If the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by Jesus Christ, then why is Caesar? Why is Caesar and the Roman legions calling the shots? If the gospel declares God's love for the world, then why are the people who believe it being locked in prisons, thrown to lions, and nailed to crosses? Christ was born, lived, died, rose again, and the world was getting worse, not better. And today we look around us. We look around us. We watch the news. We read our papers. We scroll through our devices. And we see so much oppression and war. So much injustice and famine. So much sickness and death. And we too might be forgiven for asking the question. If Christ is risen and ruling and reigning, why is there all this evil still in the world? How are we to understand it? And you see, as this vision unfolds, John will get to addressing this question. But he won't be rushed. He won't be railroaded into giving a quick and easy, simple answer. He won't be rushed. He will deal with the question of evil, but not until he has first given things some context and given some proper perspective. You see, evil twists are perspective, doesn't it? When we experience suffering or evil in any form, it seems to obscure everything else. I was at the dentist last week. I had a toothache. Now, when I have a toothache, that's all that matters. That's the only thing I can think about. It obscures the fact that the rest, most of the rest of my body or all of the rest of my body seems to be working reasonably well. That's what evil does. It obscures everything else. It becomes all-consuming. 
And so John will not tackle the question of evil until he first gives us some context and some perspective. He first paints that reality of the risen, glorious, victorious Christ in chapter 1. Then he talks about the realities of day-to-day life amongst the churches in 2 and 3. Then the triumphant worship of the Lamb upon the throne in 5 and 6. This victorious Christ of chapter 1 that we see introducing this revelation, the Son of Man shining like the sun, the Alpha and the Omega. The one who was dead but who now lives. The one who holds the keys of death and Hades. He towers over everything. And he sees into everything. And he sees into his churches. And he sees into his people. And he sees their suffering and the evil that's in the world. But through his people's worship of him, there is for them this centering immersion, a sustaining embracing of the reality of his redemptive, restoring work in the world. From the outset, we saw that Christ is the one in whom God's will is victoriously accomplished. And this worshiping community, the church, and the worship of heaven and earth, the worshiping community is where we get to know God and known by Him. You see, in worship, we become increasingly aware of the presence and the power, the pardon and the promises of our God, of our creating, redeeming, and sustaining God. And so, having taken already some 20% of the book of Revelation to establish the truths of Christ's power and victory over all things, His intimacy and His love for the church, The worship of heaven and earth around his throne, John now speaks about the reality of evil. You see, in chapter 5, John wept. He wept because no one could be found to open the scroll. No one could be found to open the Word of God. No one was found who was worthy to open the Word of God that might make some sense of the suffering and evil in the world. John wept until one stepped forward who was able to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb who was slain. The one who is worthy. The one who is able. The lamb standing at the center of the throne opens the scroll and as he opens the seals one by one what he reveals helps us to make sense of the suffering in the world. Helps to answer the question of evil in the world. You see, we do not need Jesus to tell us that the world is full of trouble and strife. But we do need his explanation of history. If that trouble and strife is to be bearable for us as we live through it. And as the whole of creation worships him, so Jesus proceeds to open the seven seals. And in effect to explain the meaning of history and the place of evil within it. As the first four seals are open, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, which we read a moment ago, we see four, four horses appear. Now, in the Bible, the horse is the animal of war. We see oxen for, for, for farming, donkeys for transport, the horse for war, for battle. So these four horses unleashed in Revelation 6, they are four war horses. And we know that history, unfortunately, folks, we know is, is, is a story of war. It's one battle after another, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And we know that for people of faith, 
we are in a constant battle. This has always been understood to be the case. From the Old Testament battles for the promised land to the New Testament, St. Paul bidding us to put on the whole armor of God to the church's hymn writers, exhorting us onward, Christian soldiers. The battle is raging all around us and within. Battles are raging within our hearts and souls, within our families and communities, between nations and peoples. You see, since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden and sin entered our world, the history of humanity has been one long sequence of battles. As Eugene Peterson says in his commentary on Revelation, he says, war is the human condition. To be human is to be at war. And you know, we get tired of it sometimes. We get tired of it. We get battle weary. And so what we long to know is how can we make sense of this? Where is God in it all? And as the seals are opened, we start to see. Chapter 6, verse 1. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now in Scripture, white signifies purity and righteousness. And later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, in chapter 19, we see again a rider on a white horse. And John says there, he says this, he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His name is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know who that is. And so here in Revelation 6, the historical understanding, the one held by most of the church for most of the time, is that the white horse and its rider represent Jesus Christ, the conqueror. <clears throat> on the white horse of purity and righteousness, holding a bow prepared for battle, wearing a crown, king of kings, and riding out as conqueror, bent on conquest. And note well that he is the first one onto the field of battle. You see, the only way to understand what looks like the mess of history and wars, the suffering and evil that litter the battleground, is to start with Jesus. Jesus is the first word. He is the alpha of the alphabet of history. You see, he's not an afterthought that was inserted when things started to go a bit skew with. No, he is the alpha, the beginning. He is, as Revelation tells us, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He is from, as Genesis and John tell us, from in the beginning. And again, to those of us perhaps used with growing up or singing songs about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, it might surprise us to see him depicted here as a warrior. But that has not always been so. You see, I wonder if I asked you what is the most quoted psalm in the whole of the New Testament. I wonder would you know that it's Psalm 110. I wonder would you know what verse it is, what it says. It's quoted some 29 times in the New Testament. And speaking of Jesus, prophetically, it says this. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. You see, biblical Christians do not sentimentalize Jesus. Yes, he deals tenderly 
and graciously with us. He does, and he is the lamb who surrendered to death. But he is also the mighty warrior. He is also the mighty warrior, the lion of Judah, roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee, every knee and everything will bow before him. You see, there is a war raging, the world is in conflict, and we see here that our Lord is the first one onto the field of battle. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. Because big issues are being fought over and decided every day. And the reality is that Jesus is not only worshipped on a Sunday, but he is, in, he is conquering and he is victorious every single day of the week. Now, that's not how we always perceive it. And that's not how our media reports it. But that is what Revelation reveals and proclaims. And the opening of the seals of the scroll continues by revealing one by one all that is lined up against Christ. Everything that opposes him. All the evils of this world. You see a picture of a victorious warrior. That's not enough to sustain his people unless and until we see him defeating that which makes war on him and on his people. So he moves on to the battlefield. On to that battlefield where suffering and evil, where death and destruction are all too real in the lives of his people. And those evils are represented by the subsequent three horses of the vision. Chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, the fiery red horse. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill one another. To him was given a large sword. The red horse and rider represent the evils of conflict and war. Then verse six, 5 and 6, the black horse, the rider holding the scales. The black horse and rider represent the evils of economic hardship and famine. Verses 7 and 8, the pale horse and its rider represent the evils of sickness and death. And the whole spectrum of evil is represented by these three horsemen. War is social evil. Famine is ecological evil. Sickness is biological evil. War destroys communities. Famine destroys creation. Sickness destroys bodies. And whilst each of these uh, evils is commonplace and widespread, we sometimes dress them up a little and try to disguise them and, and, and so that they become culturally acceptable to us. War gets disguised as patriotism and a glorious struggle for freedom. Famine is disguised as necessary for some in order for others to obtain a higher standard of living. Sickness is disguised and dumbed down by technology and medicine. War is disguised as competition. The world teaches us that in order to get on and to get what we want, we, it's not through cooperation, but by competition. And we're often inclined to use violence or force physically or psychologically to get our way. And there is so much war indeed going on in the world. War between neighbors, within families, between creeds and cultures and peoples and nations and classes. And sometimes we label it as just war, but war is still evil. War is still hell. Christ doesn't sit on the red horse ever. In a world that rejects God's rule and reign, war is the human way to seeking to achieve control and glory. But always Jesus is in battle against it, and the white horse will conquer the red horse. 
And the, black, the rider of the black horse, he carries those scales and in his hand. And a voice is heard to say, a kilogram of wheat for a day's wages and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages. And do not destroy the oil and the wine. You see, a kilogram of wheat is the absolute minimum starvation rations for a family. Famine is nature out of balance. The necessities are scarce. What is, is necessary for healthy living is unavailable, but the luxuries of life represented here by the oil and the wine. They're abundant. It's a picture, actually, of how we exploit the earth and the poor in order to get rich or to live luxurious lifestyles. And we glorify it by saying that we're, 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 you know, that we're pursuing a higher standard of living or that we're, we're encouraging economic growth or but one writer has, has described famine as the condition by which we have most of what we don't need and almost nothing of what we do need. He goes on, we don't need, we don't need constant stimulation and poisoned food and carcinogenic air and useless work. And yet who asks, who believes that there is famine in the land? And now we know that in certain places in the world, this imbalance at certain times, this Certain times and certain places, this imbalance, this injustice, this greed conspire so that the famine is obvious to all. We've all seen the pictures. Those pitiful, malnourished fellow human beings are photographed and the famine makes it into the news headlines. But you see, these physically malnourished people are a sad reminder also of the impoverished and famished social, moral, and spiritual lives of many in other parts of the world, including here in the developed West. The rider on the black horse, he does his work bringing injustice, greed, and famine, but the rider on the white horse does his as well, teaching his people to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Whilst working to restore balance, bring justice, and practice charity in the world around him. The pale horse, then he brings sickness and death, and amongst other things, one of the ways that he, that he does is through plague. And I guess until last year, we might have considered that plague was something we'd left behind with the, the 14th century, the, the Black Death, or even the Spanish uh, flu in the early 1900s. But COVID-19 has given us all a very real and fresh reminder of what it is like to be struck by plague. Healing, of course, has always been a ministry of the one on the white horse. The pale horse makes his mark again, but the white horse has the last word for ultimately, the ultimate healing is resurrection. The ultimate healing is resurrection. And notice that even as these four horsemen ride out onto the battlefield of history, they do so at the command, come. This command comes from the throne, the throne of God, for God is sovereign, always sovereign. And the red horse of conflict and war, the black horse of injustice and famine, and the pale horse of sickness and death are in battle with the white-horsed Christ. And the odds are three to one against him, but in reality, they haven't got a chance. For he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will do battle and he will conquer. And he will overcome strife. He will restore balance and he will bring healing and life. And you know, we also see in these passages that there are both wider and narrower dimensions of evil to be faced. 
There is the evil of natural disasters, which, which appear to be indiscriminate. And there is the evil of religious persecution, which is very specific to those who follow Jesus. In chapter 6 and 7 of Revelation, we are provided with images that represent every single aspect of evil. Social strife, ecological disaster, sickness and death, natural catastrophe, and religious persecution. You see, nothing that we perceive as evil is left unacknowledged, left unfaced, or left undefeated. And you know, here's the thing. Here's what I love about this now. I love the way that this vision unfolds. Very deliberately choreographed and revealed by God to reveal to us the truth of exactly what is going on. Look at this. Immediately before the scroll is opened in Revelation 6, last two verses of Revelation 5, John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Here we see that Jesus is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is ruling and reigning. And everything that has breath is worshiping him. Everything. And then the scroll of history and time is unsealed in chapter 6. Where the battle of evil is fought out. With these three horsemen representing all the evils of the world. And then immediately following that John sees in chapter 7. This great multitude of people that no one could count. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So what we see in these three chapters of Revelation is this. Revelation 5, endless worship. Endless worship. Revelation 6, a finite period of evil in history. Revelation 7, endless worship. Endless worship. We dare not miss this, folks, because this is our perspective. Evil is not explained, but it is contained. Evil is not minimized, but it is put in its place. It is bracketed by endless worship on both sides. A finite period of evil is surrounded by endless worship of Christ and the rejoicing of his people. Just as I finish, evil is real and evil is a real pain. And I don't make light of it. I don't like its painful effects on me any more than the next person. And I know that some of you are going through some real suffering, evil, right now. But this morning, God gives us an eternal hope. This revelation gives us context. This vision gives us perspective as we go through those painful times. The vision of revelation says, acknowledge evil, but do not fear it. For revelation puts in picture John's words in 1 John chapter 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We can endure evil for we have already triumphed. Weeping may last for a night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. 
the one who is fighting our battles, has defeated evil for us. As Jesus told his disciples himself in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Evil does not have the victory. Christ does. Evil does not have the last say. Jesus does. Evil is a time-bound episode. Evil is a moment in history. And as we zoom out, as we zoom out, and as God wipes away every tear from our eyes, we gain an accurate, eternal, heavenly perspective. Evil becomes smaller and smaller as we join in the growing, surrounding, eternal worship of the victorious, risen, ruling, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will one day return, banish evil forever, make all things new, perfect, just as God always intended. And we will join with everything that has breath in that thunderous chorus of unending worship, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Shall we pray for a moment together? Let us pray. God is at work amongst us by His Spirit and by His Word, and He's bringing hope and He's bringing healing. I, I loved, as we sang earlier, about walking with, with our Lord, walking with Jesus, and I had this picture of Him just walking amongst us, just as, it, as He is It tells us in Revelation that the Son of Man is walking with His church, with His people. I have this picture of Him just walking around this place this morning, calling us to Him, offering us healing and hope. So let's take a moment in the presence of God and in the silence of our own hearts to continue responding to what He's doing amongst us and receiving what He is offering us. Father God, we give you thanks for your word and for this revelation of truth that you have given your church to sustain us through difficult times. We acknowledge the evil and the pain and the suffering that is in our world and which affects each and every one of us. But we give you thanks for this comfort, this reassurance, this picture of evil in perspective, a finite time of suffering, sandwiched between infinite times of endless worship and rejoicing of your people. We thank you that you are indeed fighting our battles and that in the midst of it all, you are with us, even bringing good to us and glory to yourself through the many ups and downs, the trials and tribulations of life. And Lord, we look forward to that wonderful day when you will return in glory to wind up history, to banish evil for good, and to make all things new. But until that day, we thank you for your presence with us, your plans for us, and your promises to us. We thank you that you give us the victory. So may we rest secure in the knowledge that through whatever trial or tribulation we may face in the days ahead, We have the victory because you remain faithful forever, perfect in love and sovereign over us. We pray these things in the name of our risen, ruling, reigning and returning Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and for your glory and praise alone. Amen. Amen.